Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our bi-weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to Season 2, Episode 2 on The History of Wine. Friday, everyone. Today, we're talking about the history of wine, which is the perfect way to kick off our weekends. You know, you feel me? And since we're talking about wine, let me go grab myself a glass. Let's pour it up a little. I'm going to grab some wine and feel free to grab whatever it is that you like to drink. It could be water, whatever you like, you know. Let me take a sip. Mm. That tastes good. (laughs) I am excited to talk about wine. You know, that fermented grape drink that traditionally comes in red or white. And there are several types of wine glasses that you can use with or without a stem. It's all up to you. And I'm just excited to talk about this episode for two reasons. The first is because I'm a wine kind of gal. I choose wine over hard alcohol any day, okay? And the second reason why I'm excited for this episode is because today's special guest, Cha McCoy, is so, so dope. She is a fellow Harlemite, you know what I'm saying? like your girl, and she's one of the few black sommeliers, which we'll define later, but it basically means she's a wine boss, and she's killing the wine game right now. She is a civil engineer turned wine expert sommelier, and before COVID, Cha hosted these casual wine pairing dinners around the world that were informative inclusive and snob free and you know we appreciate that over here at the podcast because we're all about being snob free and currently she is cultivating a wine community through her wine subscription box called the flight crew where you can travel with every sip of wine and through her monthly virtual tastings cha is a friend of mine who is just dedicated to cultivating luxury food, wine, and travel experiences for people of color to make sure that we have a seat at the table. So in this episode on the history of wine, we cover how wine is made, who first started making wine, hint, it's not France. We also have Cha defined for us what is a sommelier and everything that goes into that title and the certifications and all that good stuff. In this episode, we also cover the ways in which wine spread around the world with colonialism and religion. And then, of course, we learn about Cha, you know, our special guest and how she went from being an engineer and building buildings for sacks to 
killing the wine and food and tourism game and making sure that black folks are included. And then the episode also includes and wraps up with Cha just giving us some tips on how to pick wine, how much money we should spend on wine to get a decent, you know, sip. And so you want to make sure you tune in and hear all of that. If you are a new listener to That Wasn't In My Textbook podcast, welcome. You're listening to one of the dopest, funnest podcasts out there, history podcasts out there, let me be clear. And just so you understand the general run of the show, the first 10 minutes or so, I give you a little background of the topic, a brief overview. And today we'll be doing a brief overview of wine. And then the other 30 minutes of the show is the interview with our special guest who will school us on a few things. And today she's going to be telling us all the wine things. And if you are a ride or die listener from season one, welcome back. I appreciate you. And honestly, I owe you an apology (laughs) because I promised y'all this wine episode weeks ago and I don't know I think the pressure of doing a second season and wanting it to be better and just I don't know I'm allowing like self-doubt and overthinking to hinder me from just doing my bi-weekly episodes like I normally do and so I was just doubting myself and procrastinating and using perfectionism but I shook that shit off okay I promise you and now from this day forward from this episode forward we're back to our regularly scheduled program bi-weekly episodes (laughs) thank you for listening to my rant explanation in my digression is digression a word okay anyway back to the wine did you know that wine is the third most popular drink in the world yep number three number one is tea and number two is coffee and on the podcast we've already talked about the history of tea in season one so you should definitely check that out if you haven't it's a really good episode I'm not biased or anything like that and you know since we already talked about drink number one and I don't really drink coffee so we ain't gonna worry about drink number two for the moment it seems perfect to talk about the top third drink in the world which is wine and looking at the history of it to understand the connection of the world's very first wine grape into our current glasses of wine and uncovering the history of anything and in this episode's case the history of wine gives more dimension to the experience which allows us to have a deeper appreciation and a sense of enjoyment with every sip that we take. So cheers to that. For this history segment, the very first part before we get into the interview, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of wine and emphasis on brief because there's a lot that goes into the history of wine. In Cha's interview, she really like breaks it down and gives a lot of history because she is an expert. So we will start this history segment As we always do with definitions, we'll define wine and sommelier. We'll also talk about where wine originated. Again, it's not France. We'll learn the three ways that wine is categorized um, by the expert experts so we can sound smart and shit. And we'll learn about five or six facts about the early history of wine that will show us how various cultures have produced and used wine over the years. And then we're going to wrap it up and talk about how wine came to the Americas. (coughs) Colonizers. (coughs) 
<laughs> and then boom, we'll jump into the amazing interview with Cha, who is a sommelier, a wine historian of sorts, and she schools us on all that we need to know about the history of wine and how to enjoy wine today. So as always, let's start off with definitions. First, the definition of wine, then the definition of sommelier. So wine is an alcoholic beverage made from fermented juice of grapes. So basically, it's grape juice that's fermented. And fermentation is just when yeast is mixed with sugars, you know, the natural sugars of grapes. And that's how it becomes alcoholic. And you get that buzz, you know what I'm saying? When you have a couple glasses, you know, two, three, four, five. But anyway, (laughs) so that is what wine is. It's basically fermented grape drink, which is just like aged grape drink, you know, that mixes with yeast and sugar. The difference between like the two most popular, I guess, alcoholic drinks, right? Wine is fermented grapes and beer is fermented grains. So that's how that works. And you can basically ferment anything, any type of fruit. But when you say when you see wine on the label, then you know that it's fermented grapes in per. Particular. The difference between red and white wine is when it's being fermented, when it's sitting with the yeast and the sugar. With red wine, they leave the skin of the grapes on, and with white wine, they take the skin off. Boom. There's the definition of wine. And so Meunier is a wine steward. It is a trained, certified, knowledgeable professional who works in fine restaurants most of the time, who specializes in wine service. So wine food pairing, pouring the wine, all that other stuff. It's not just someone who like drinks wine all the time like me. I couldn't say I'm a sommelier. (laughs) And one of the first things we should know about the history of wine is when and where did wine making begin? Now, you would probably guess, like I did, that it was like France or Italy or Spain, just because those places are kind of like the common places that people think of when they think of wine making and wine culture. But Ah, uh, 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 wine did not begin in France, in Italy, or Spain. Research shows that wine was first produced in China around 7,000 BC before Christ. It means a long ass time ago, like caveman time. <laughs> and following that, um, you know, and following that, Wine was also uncovered in places like Armenia and Georgia, which is like a couple of thousand years after that. So now while wine was uncovered in China, it was believed to be a rice wine, which is like a fermented beverage with a mixture of rice, honey and fruit. Right. And it wasn't confirmed whether or not it was grapes themselves that we talked about, like grapes means wine. However, it is suggested that, you know, grapes mean wine but following that discovery that China was fermenting things first then recently the researchers discovered the oldest winery was in Armenia which is sandwiched between like Asia and Europe and it was determined by those same researchers that the wine grapes in this ancient winery are the same used in most wines today in fact researchers conclude that the final product coming out of the first winery located in Armenia about 6,000 BC was probably similar to an unfiltered red wine that tastes like Merlot. 
So let's think about this, about this first winery that was found in the mountains of Armenia. And that means that wine was being produced by brown folks, people in the caves and the brown folks, as Chab pointed out in our interview. There's also evidence of early winemaking in ancient Iran, Egypt, places where more brown folks lived and reside, and other places like Israel, Greece, Cyprus, and Sicily. So while wine drinking fermentation started in China, the discovery of the early example of wine production that started in Armenia is an example that brown folks in the mountains started this, and the discovery of this Armenian winery shows that this wine was most likely used for burial ceremonies, especially since it was like found in a cave that used to be a burial site. So there you have it. China, Armenia, ancient Egypt, all those kind of Middle Eastern, North African places started this whole wine thing. Okay, <laughs> now that we've gotten the root of wine making out of the way. When discussing the history of wine, it's helpful to understand that there's this like categorization process that the experts use that will help us sound bougie and help us understand the history of wine and how it connects to where the wine started in different parts of the world. And so wine is categorized into three different categories. (laughs) And the three phrases are one, ancient world wines. (laughs) I can't say that three times, two old world wines and three new world wines. And so the first one, ancient world wines, as mentioned, refers to wines and places where wine originated that wasn't in our textbooks. And those are the places we just discussed. So these ancient wine areas include China, Armenia, Iran, Egypt, the places where the world's first winemakers and wineries were about where, you know, winemakers developed techniques for fermenting grapes into drink, into alcohol. The second category of wine is old world wine. And old world wine comes from the traditional wine regions across Europe, the Mediterranean and the Middle East, which is where wine growing really took off and developed. So old world wine production uses a common grapevine known as vinitis, V-I-T-I-S, Vinifera, V-I-N-I-F-E-R-A. And that's the grape and the grape is native to the Mediterranean region. And so old world wine includes places like France, Sicily, all the places that we think of um, with wine. And then the third category of sorts, the new world wine, comes from just about any other region that isn't considered ancient or old. For instance, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Chile, South Africa, Canada are considered new world wines wine regions. Of course, there's also the United States with California, Oregon, and Washington being the most well-known wine production states. So those are the three kind of categories that break down the geography of wine that we should know. Ancient world wines, (laughs) ancient world wines, old world wine, and new world wine. Because there's such a rich history of wine, there's no way we could detail every single location, discovery, or development, but I'm going to share about 
six facts about wine that we should know. This will give you a quick breakdown of wine's worldwide travels and how various cultures have produced and consumed it over the centuries. So the first kind of fact or thing we should know about wine is what we already went over, like China, Armenia, Egypt, Non-white folks, non-Europeans are the originators of wine and fermenting that grape drink that gives us the version of wine that's in our cup today. China started fermenting things probably like Weisswein, and the oldest winery was uncovered in 2016, but it was in Armenia from 6000 BC in a cave. Armenians, ancient Egyptians, used wine for religious and burial ceremonies. Fact two that we should know about the history of wine is that physicians are responsible for starting the wine trade. They move this increasingly popular beverage, you know, the wine grapes themselves across the Mediterranean, including Greece, Italy, Turkey, Israel. And so you might be like, Latoya, did you say the physicians are responsible for wine trade? And I did. But who are the physicians? And they're the Asian people of the Mediterranean. And they would be located where modern day Lebanon is. So another group of brown folks were responsible for spreading wine and trading wine and planting grapes and vines in the Mediterranean, if you really think about it. So these brown folks were responsible for spreading wine. And during these travels, the physicians came in contact with Jewish people who began to use wine as a part of their religious ceremonies. Fact number three is that the Phoenicians also introduced wine to the Greeks who loved it so much that they made a wine god. And the Greeks took wine with them as they colonialized places like Rome and Sicily. And Romans also kind of mimicked the Greeks and made a wine god as well. But the Romans took the Greeks' winemaking process and fine-tuned it and, and tweaked the techniques to help them produce a quicker pace and lower cost wine. So with this new technique, the Romans transformed wine from being this like elitist, rich folks only kind of experience to being like, everybody can drink wine. You get a wine, you get a wine, and you get a wine. (laughs) And so then as the Roman Empire grew across Europe, they planted grapevines in European countries, including modern day France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Germany. Fact number four, right? We're talking about the Romans now. They have the wine in their hands. This Roman Empire dude named Constantine started to take over the Catholic Church and Christianity became a primary religious force in Roman empires. And with it, wine took a prominent place in Catholic and Christian religious rituals, specifically Catholic rituals like communion. And so today, we still see this practice of using wine, or at least the symbolism of wine is still very much a part of churches across the Christian and Catholic faith. And it's yet another example of the enduring influence that wine has had on mankind, not only for social pleasure and rituals and burials, but for spiritual practices. So that's the ancient early wine history that we should know that happened in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. But what about the Americas? How did we get wine to North and South America? Hint, colonizers. So the number one answer to this question is 
you know, the most popular colonizer of them all, Christopher Columbus. And if you listen to the episode on the Indigenous Peoples Day episode from season one, then you know the only Christopher I acknowledge is Christopher Wallace. But for the sake of this episode, I will say Christopher Columbus for y'all. So in 1942, when Christopher Columbus got lost and thought he discovered America when he didn't because people were already here, he not only brought with him he not only brought with him disease and greed, but he brought wine. And so between that time of Christopher Columbus making these expeditions from Spain to the Americas between like 1940s and the 1600s, himself, Christopher Columbus and other different colonizers took over different parts of North and South America. And with them, they brought grapes and wine. So as Spanish colonizers invaded places like Mexico and Brazil, they bought the European grape cultivation process. And so wine production spread all across South America. And Spanish missionaries, a.k.a. colonizers with religion, established the first winery in Chile. And these religious colonizers then traveled to other parts of South America, like Argentina, where they planted the region's first wine varieties. And over time, they just started to spread, right? And in North America in the 18th century, so around the 1830s, a Spanish missionary dude named Japero, I don't even know if I said his name right, J-U-N-I-P-E-R-O, traveled to San Diego, California, where he established the state's first mission and first known vineyard. And as he and his crew developed missions up and down the state of California, they planted these mission grapes which was a variety of a wine grape from Spain and that's how the early beginnings of California became wine country which I haven't even been able to explore California as a wine country because of COVID I haven't been to any vineyards out here but that's story for another day around that same time that this was going on in the Americas and in California, the 1830s, this Scottish dude <laughs> who was born and raised in Australia, he was a wine grower and writer named James Bussey, took his grapevine cuttings from Europe and planted them in vineyards in Australia. And then he took his wine cuttings from Australia to New Zealand and established New Zealand's first vineyard. So nearly 200 later, descendants from his original cuttings are still thriving in vineyards throughout Australia and New Zealand. And because of this, he is considered, James that is, is considered the father of, Aust of the Australian wine industry. And so that is just a brief overview of wine. And it's clear that wine is here to stay. In fact, the only continent on the planet where a vineyard does not exist is Antarctica, which I'm assuming is because it's cold, I think, right? And so today, the wine that we drink comes from the grapes and wine-making process of the ancient and old times. From the first winery hidden in Armenia to the physicians' worldwide influence in wine trade and winemaking to the social and spiritual aspects of wine in the Rome, Catholic, and Greek culture and beyond, and of course, the influence of colonialization, wine is much more than just a fermented grape drink. 
it's a lesson in history that you can savor every time you take a sip. And so I thought that was really interesting to see that wine, first of all, was started in China and then cultivated and perfected in these brown Middle Eastern-esque Mediterranean countries. And then to see how wine spread worldwide as people conquered, which is unfortunate, really, right? I do not support colonialization, but you can see that one of the results of colonialization outside of slavery, death, disease, all the other genocide type of things is the spread of wine. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing, but it's just something to take note of that colonialization also spread different and impacted different cultures and how we drink different drinks. And so now we're going to jump into the interview with Cha, who is going to school us on all things wine. Hi, Cha. How are you? Hey, sis. Hey, Harlem, sis. Hey, Harlem in the building. (laughs) I'm still claiming you regardless where you go. Just like no matter what country I'm in, I'm always repping. So. We're always from Harlem, right? That's the the key right there, the word from. Oh, sure. <laughs> exactly. So I'm so excited to have you here because, you know, I know you personally, of course, but you also have been killing the wine game with your subscription service, The Flight Crew. You've been featured in Food and Wine. You're one of the Black few black sommeliers out there killing the game, making it inclusive for all of us. And you're a civil engineer turned wine expert. So I'm just like, you know, your story is really interesting. I'm excited to have you here before we jump into some of the questions. You know, I did a little intro before we got into this interview, but can you tell us about yourself, how dope you are and the different things that you have going on right now? I love that. Can you tell us how dope you are? (laughs) Um, Sure. But yes, so I am a certified sommelier. I do wine consultancy for wineries, for marketing about wines, as well as social media, Um, brand engagement campaigns as well. And that can be on my own platform or others. I'm also the beverage director and beverage lead for Cherry Bomb Magazine. Mm -hmm. I have my new project, which you just mentioned, which is uh, the flight crew which I started out of the need, the pandemic showed me some things. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, virtual events has become a thing and wine showing up at people's doorsteps has been a thing. So I tried to put them both together, give you that virtual experience. You can just sign up for, have wine selections uh, curated by me. And, um, And so I have a wine subscription, one month, three months, and it's all based around travel and wine. So that's why it's called the flight crew. Uh, and then I just released it because I because I can't stop. But in the, <laughs> the midst of all of the, I want to say the momentum, you know, of last year, and everyone, and I think everybody had to pick things up. It's not like really for us to say, "Hey, white folks, yeah, I'm glad you just recognized what you know we've been left out. Yeah, exactly. give us our yeah. Okay, that's one part. But we also need to be active in this space on how to help." Um, our fellow, our peers, our community, et cetera. And so it motivated me to start my lip service, my language learning program, which is called Lip Service, uh, where we're now doing a three month language uh, 
acquisition challenge. <laughs> and so everybody has, you know, accepted that they was going to make language learning a priority uh, for 2021. Mm -hmm. So we started on January 1st as a New Year's resolution, if you want to say. Mm -hmm. And there's also a BIPOC uh, in hospitality scholarship program that I am working with Babbel as one of our first sponsorship, the language learning app. So we're going to have a group of about 30 uh, scholarship recipients and the ambassadors where we're really using hospitality, I'm sorry, using language to reshape how we can reimagine hospitality, you know, making everybody feel comfortable at the table in all the languages. <laughs> I love that. That's one of my goals for like 2021 is to actually learn a new language. Up. I need to sign up. Okay. So we always start off the episode with one of our signature questions, which is how do you define wine? Can you define it for us, for our listeners? Wine is grape juice. You mean literally? Okay. <laughs> well, how do you so, how do you define wine as someone who is a sommelier? Oh, okay. I'm like, yeah. well, well, first let's go to the real definition. So wine okay. is wine can be made from any fruit. For those who didn't know that. Oh. Um, but the one that we normally talk about is grapes. When you hear it traditionally, uh, grape juice being fermented. Uh, obviously, you can also distill grape juice, and then that's when it becomes something else. Hint to all my henny lovers in the room: it can become cognac right oh. gravy. so that's literally what Hennessy is it's grape juice distilled versus grape juice being fermented which will make it wine so wow. a lot of people lose contact which I maybe it didn't sound like that's what you originally were asking but mm -hmm. some people recognize that wine is just grape juice fermented you know and so that's where that's that's how we get it that's the fermentation process is how we get it the alcohol introduced into it so that that's what makes it boozy grape juice. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, like how vodka is made or whiskey, it's the idea if you distill it, it becomes something else. Um, and that would make it, in this case, a brandy. So that's, let's, that just, let's just make the, let's make it clear. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that definition. Is. Yeah. I mean, it's simple, but most people, I think, think so much about wine that they don't even realize that it's more simpler than what they think. Yeah. Um, so, you ask, well, how do I define wine? So I use wine as my, my ticket. I've been using it as my ticket in spaces and rooms that I was not invited, <laughs> let's be clear, mm -hmm. right? And so it has allowed me to, you know, elevate even my own personal journey as well as professionally. And that's even like you mentioned in the beginning, you know, me as a civil engineer, I remember sharing with, I had this, uh, I don't want to call him redneck, but <laughs> um, colleague, and he was, he was so amazed by me. And it was kind of weird because you can tell that, he, like, the thing that shocked him the most is that he's this white man who has had no exposure or experience with any of the things I have touched. And at that point, I don't know, I was 20 something or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he was, and he was, from Florida and he was working with me in New York, um, a fellow project manager. And so when he would hear what I did and what I, you know, that I lived in Italy and all sorts of stuff, he would be like, wow, wow. And I was like, huh? Like, you know, I'm like, I don't know how impressive it is to buy it. Like, you know, like you can live there too. Like, I'm like, I'm confused on why you think, but then I realized it was more because I looked the way I look and where I was from. I'm probably the last definition of someone he would think that he would now become 
coworkers with and actually knew about wine, lived abroad. It was to the point where he submitted like my bio to the corporate, you know, to make me like employee of like the month. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like these newsletters where they would highlight like, uh, you know, like uh, I worked for at that time, sex. And so they, in the engineering store planning department, for those of you who don't like understand, like, wait, I didn't know she was in fashion or she was in engineering, but <laughs> I build sack stores for anybody who, who was confused. And so he was very intrigued by the idea that I was sitting next to him and I had lived this whole like life that just seemed so unimaginable for this black woman to have done already. And now I'm sitting next to him. I'm like, like if I went to Antarctica and like, I don't know, and cured cancer or something like this. So <laughs> it was kind of odd. But I remember at that moment that his astonishment about my life. Also, when I would, because I traveled to different stores, as I completed building them, et cetera, people from different regions for Saks and Lord and Taylor, they would recognize me from that newsletter that he put me in. Now, I know he didn't do that for that reason, but I would show up to Boston at the Lord and Taylor and they go, yes, you're the one who lived in Italy, right? And I'm like, what? Like, how does this random general manager know me? Um, and then we would start, it would start a conversation. And so I realized that slowly my travels and wine ended up being a way for me to talk to people who were VPs in my corporate world that I would have never like kind of went out my way to go, yeah, and I know about wine. Um, but I, because of that exposure through him, uh, through the newsletter, it kind of made it just connector to even people in my corporate world. They would like feel like they can relate to me and wanted to talk to me about Italy and all the travels. And I was like, this is interesting. But I also realized like, oh wait, but this allowed me to be in a room um, and they having this kind of camaraderie with me because they read that newsletter about me that one month, three months ago, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I realized that, oh, okay, this can be used in different ways. And I just kind of took a little tab of it. I didn't really, didn't know what to do with it at that point. I had just moved back from Italy um, when I took this job. So this mm -hmm. is why I was very fresh. I just moved back to, from Italy in 2012 to New York. And this was the first um, corporate job I've taken after just working in a wine shop in Harlem. So that's why people were like, wait a minute, she just came from where? Living in Italy and working in a wine shop. I'm confused. Who is this girl? So long story short, um, wine has definitely become the connector for me to like be in rooms that are above me. Um, and then it's ways that I've used to be on the grounds when I'm traveling to connect with people that's around me as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yes, that was beautiful. I love that you described it as a ticket, you know, because there's certain <laughs> things that do that you can talk about or experience that you have that allow you to relate to other people. Of course, you know, the guy at your job was just astonished that you were able to do these things as a black woman. We're not going to give him credit for that. But um, <laughs> I love that you said that it's a ticket. And so one of the other signature questions of the show is did you ever learn about wine in school it could even be on the collegiate level we always say like did you learn about it in your textbook um and you know what are some important things that you think people should know about wine i'm gonna try to be not as lengthy with all the questions you have but i can tell you <laughs> right now the answer is no mm -hmm. of course i had to once I decided to learn about wine, I'm learning about wine that way yes. through the different 
organizations and programs that were structured around wine, but I had no exposure to wine before moving to Italy on that level. And that's because I'm living near people who are actually winemakers and who uh, part of their everyday life was, you know, there was a glass on the table. And that was something that was interesting to me, no matter if the person was a, I don't know, the janitor, a teacher, um, you know, the bus boy, everybody drank wine. It wasn't this fancy, luxurious, you know, thing that we think in America, like, oh, she knows about wine. Ooh. Would you yeah. say the same thing if I told you I know the same amount of information about beer? Like, I don't <laughs> think no one feels that way. And so, yeah. you know, in Europe, wine is like beer in that kind of way, you know, uh, and I'm going to say that on the lower end of wine, obviously not the wines that are thousands of dollars. And yes. I had a couple of course beer that's that amount of money. But um, when it comes to like the everyday wines, it is, you know, people understand that the everyday people drink it. So it's not considered only for the fancy folks, right? Or for the elite group of people. Yes. Um, and so in my textbooks, I would tell you, there are things that you gotta, you gotta be a history buff to kind of like love wine or at least do this job. Love the sound of that. <laughs> Cause you know, there's a lot that we have learned in global history about trade agreements. And even if you're even, not even history, even today, if you're watching the news that actually impacts wine, right? So a big deal was about the tariffs um, that that man last year who supposedly- The orange man. Yes. <laughs> Um, that he what he put in place that affected European wines and the price and the price of champagne was going to double and how much is going to cost to get to it like that's going to be in history that this man did that right mm -hmm. so there's positive uh, trades that also happen uh, in this case where the the longest trade agreement in history and, and not to be mistaken I think this is across the world not just um, not let's just say formally, because we don't know any trades that we don't know about, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't know about, but between England and Portugal has a lot to do with the wars at the time and the British not liking the French. So they needed to get wine from somewhere else. So then they reached out to the country below France. And in this case, uh, it's, well, Spain is in uh, agreement with France. And now they're like, okay, there's Portugal who have their own wine. And that's why our people who, we already know the hood right now is loving Taylor Port and Port Wine or whatever <laughs> such a thing. Um, let's just say in the streets of Harlem. And the reason why it's not some Portuguese name and it's Taylor, you know, it's because there's a British trade agreement that was established a long time ago. And now the family, the Taylors um, or the Grams or it's a bunch of English yeah that names are on these bottles. So that tells you a lot about what was going on at the time when this winery, when this uh, was established. And so I feel like the more you know about history and politics and let's say world domination, right? Yes. That tells you a lot about how wine culture is, even whether it's in Africa or whether it's in the States, et cetera. It has a lot to do with the moving parts of power um, and, and I feel like that's one way to kind of like tap into it. So it's not in our books because no one's talking about the wine portion. It's like no one cares about that. They just really yeah. care that the English had full control of the trade route between here to here. And so they don't, you have to think, okay, that also means wine was able to get across from here to here 
um, through that trade agreement with England or with their connection with Portugal. And that's probably why, if you don't know already, this is in history books, is that Madeira, which is an island off of uh, the western coast of Africa, um, which is a Portuguese island as well, it was the first wine that was used to be, it was actually the wine toasted between George Washington at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So that one is in the textbook. I feel like more people who know about wine, they start learning about these things about, oh, okay, why was he toasting with Madeira? Aha, and then you go do a little bit more research, like compared to like wine from France or wine from anywhere else. You know, there's a reason why Madeira, Portuguese wine, was actually um, part of that celebration. So it's almost like you kind of got, you know, this context clues for it in Facebook, but then you got to do the extra, you know, extra work. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I love history stuff. So that whole, I'm like, oh, I'm learning so much about just, you know, the tariffs and stuff. Cause yeah, I'm like, you know, alcohol, generally speaking, is not going to be in our textbooks, but there mm -hmm. is history in terms of like the trading stuff. So I never thought about that. I really appreciate you dropping that in there. Um, and so I know that you're a so much friends. Remember, sorry, who was allies is very important. Yeah. Whoever this country was in, like in this case, if Trump don't like France, then let's say the next, let's like, God forbid, if he actually was in control right now, and then there was like no French wine on the market, and then importers, ex importer, exporters, distributors, and they're looking at bottom lines. If it's going to be too expensive to get French wine because the president decided to make some extra tariffs on certain countries, then people were like, oh, so what they got down in South Africa? <laughs> Easy. Exactly. <laughs> Forget Europe. <laughs> we just go somewhere else where we can actually have uh, a, a good margin off of the wine. And so if Europe can't do that for you right now, then now that changes history or relations or what you see on the shelf. So just keep that in mind too. So what, we, what has happened in the history can be repeated based on uh, political um, allies and agreements even in the future. Wow. Well, I did not know that. I can't wait to like dive into a little bit more history about that so I can share with the listeners. Um, I know you're also a sommelier, right? So could you just tell people what that is, you know, and then talk about the process of becoming one, becoming certified? Yes. A sommelier is a wine steward. Uh, literally, that is the definition. That basically means you are a wine slave. That means you are a wine <laughs> servant. That is, I mean, I don't... An expert? Could you put expert in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's okay. wine. But I think the difference is because a wine expert do not have to be a sommelier. So mm. I feel like a lot of people are thinking that that word is synonymous. Yes. Like I even have like clients who go, oh, you know, I love wine. You know, I'm a sommelier. And I'm like, girl, are you? You know, and I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm confused on why they think they are, but it's because they think uh, being a sommelier is almost synonymous with being a wine enthusiast or mm -hmm. a wine expert. Not the same. Connoisseur. And I'm like, no, someone who loves wine, who educates himself about wine or it's not the same thing like the job title sommelier mm -hmm. uh, or becoming certified as a sommelier is either right yes. and so mm -hmm. so I'm glad you asked that question to take a step back one there is the job title of sommelier and that's the only version of it <laughs> there is no <laughs> other way of becoming a sommelier besides working the floor being a wine steward being a wine servant and this is why i say it like this a wine expert you can never work in wine and become a wine expert though so mm -hmm. i feel like that's why i don't use that interchangeably because then people get confused so 
let's go with wine steward or wine uh, servant so people can understand that this is a service job where you have to know wine, yes, and everything about wine, you know, the world of wine, um, towar, uh, history, geography, mm. hey, even weather, wow. <laughs> weather, you know, climate change, all of this is part of me talking about wine, um, the personal stories of the, of the actual producer as well. And so we're basically oral recorders and then we also evaluate wine, right? So that's part of the service part. So, you know, again, people can learn about wine and studying it, but then it's the act of actually servicing it to guests. Uh, and so that's how you open the wine, um, when to use which glass with what, you know, all those things we have to become experts in as well as the actual service. Um, to talk about the levels of testing, if those who are interested, so there are, again, multiple different organizations. Uh, the main one people go to is the Court of the Masters. But if anybody has been following the news at the end of 2020, uh, there was a massive article um, that came out that just kind of highlighted a lot of the sexual harassment, sexual mm -hmm. abuse, and uh, even rape wow. uh, cases mm -hmm. that uh, came out of this idea of master, literally, uh, and the folks who are under uh, trying to work their way up to become a master, which is the fourth level. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that would be the appropriate place to shine a light on, but that is the, the ranks that I came up on and I'm the second level of that, which is called certified. Uh, the third level is advanced and then the fourth level is master. So just putting it out there that it does exist. But right now they are re revamping, <laughs> rebranding re everything in. That's that's just where the certification that I currently have is yes. um, established from. And so and for each level, is there a quick like a test or like an exam for each level? Level has an exam. The entry one, you don't give your name. It's just like level one is actually called introductory, I think. Um, where you have to go to a one day, uh, one or two day, yeah, one, two day class. And then at the end of the second day class, you take a multiple choice test and that's it. The second level is two days long. I forget now. Either way, you basically, is no class. You basically have to take the test and that's it. Uh, and and it all it all works up from that way. So in that case, once you take advanced or go into master's level, it's a lot of training involved. Um, the multiple choice one, which is the intro one, is for people who really just want to learn about wine. And so you'll get various people that's not even probably in the industry who will take that one. But the levels moving forward are usually people who are in the industry because now the next level will test you on service. Like I had to go to, I had to be a sommelier at a fake restaurant called Bubbles. And so they basically planted names and name places. And then I had to serve the different guests and they basically watched me perform service and induct, deduct points based off of how I responded. So this is an oral exam. Wow. <laughs> you know, like I a remember, mock interview kind of thing. Correct. Well, nothing mock was about this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah except, for the, except for the service. restaurant existence. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so they wanted to see how you open champagne. They wanted to, uh, they throw me, they threw a monkey wrench at, at me and asked me about sake service. Um, I remember them asking me questions about, um, they told me to make a Paloma, which is a, uh, 
a cocktail. And so in this case, they asked me which brand of tequila I was going to use. So sommelier service, I think people think that it's, oh, just the person who knows about wine. It's about knowing about beverages. <laughs> mm, <laughs> yeah. They're like making you over here doing sake bombs. Yeah. You have to know everything. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is that you should know what's in them, but you don't make them. So we're not, we're, that's why we're the service, like the servants, you know, okay. the stewards mm. of beverage versus like a bartender now has to go make the Paloma. I just need to know what's in it. So in case someone's allergic to grapefruit, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so I can be like, oh, they're like, oh no, I can't take that because that one has grapefruit. I'm like, okay, no problem. So I won't tell the bartender, right? So now we will, now I'm like, oh, maybe I'll suggest another cocktail for you that maybe will work because I'm the one that's interacting directly in the restaurant setting um, as a sommelier with the guests where the bartender is behind the bar, right? Thank so the intentions, I can't get the bartender every time like, oh, what's in that drink, girl? You know, <laughs> um, and you, you, you're you the, the mouthpiece behind all the beverages, unless you're sitting at the bar, obviously, then that's their job. But, um, but people don't usually think of that. And so that's why the exam, um, a lot of people don't pass. And that's just the second level when some people don't pass. And so there's, in the beginning, blind tasting. So good old wine in the glass. Guess what wine it is. Uh, you write it all down. The next uh, part of the test is multiple choice. Another part of that test is all written essay format. Good old Regents exam. Wow, handy, <laughs> cramping. <laughs> exactly, with the blue notebook, you know, the empty pages. You're like, how am I going to fill this book? Uh, <laughs> So that's also part of it. And then the last part is the actual service. And again, that's just level two. Level three is more advanced or in an actual more deeper knowledge into it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then obviously the the master level is even more complicated. Intense. (laughs) It just only goes up with difficulty from there. I just wanted to, because I really don't want to kind of promote that school right now. Mm -hmm. I just want to give people another option. Of course. And so uh, there is a WSET. And the WSET programming, which I'm also certified in, um, that is more education-based. Mm-hmm. So people who do that programming usually uh, move forward, maybe not as sommeliers, because service is not a part of that structure. It's more about learning. Mm-hmm. So every one of them have a class, every portion of it. It also has four levels. Um, and then someone who's a, the equivalent to a master psalm, uh, in the WSET program is an MW, which is a master of wine. And so that is what you will become if you test it up to that same level on the um, WSET programming. But all of them have classes, uh, like long school semester, like college semester classes. I remember like you'll start in like September and you would end and test out in like January. Nice. So um, yeah, and then they, everything goes by region, et cetera. So yeah, it only becomes more difficult, same idea. Once you get to level four, um, which would be the the master level or the diploma level, actually, is what it's called. So just want to give that as an alternative to learning about wine or if you want to actually study wine and get certified in a way um, without just looking at the court. Yes. Well, thank you for that. Um, I learned a lot and um you know kudos to you for even just making it to level two because that shit sounds intense it's like i'm proud of you i'm proud of you i'm happy that i know you um tell us about how you went from like your interest in wine like when did that start you know how'd you go from engineering building sax buildings to being like i'm doing wine (laughs) um well my interest started from when i moved to italy um 
in 2010 mm-hmm. and it wasn't official then I came back to the states and didn't want to go back to corporate I was like uh I can't I don't want to do this right you. away I, I need like a, I need a cushion between this and I ended up working at the wine shop that I mentioned so uh shout out to the winery on 116th and 8th that oh, I know I that that's where I got my my wine chops as we would say mm-hmm. so I was there I was a Cavis I was a wine retail seller um and it was a good introduction because I still came back from Italy only knowing about Italian wine I really didn't know anything about France and any other country because when you're in a lot of these countries they sell their own wine they don't really like oh here's the world you know only in America (laughs) yeah Uh, so yeah countries like England Australia even they do the same thing. I feel, I feel like, but in, in, in London, you will definitely get more of like a selection of like wines as well, like being in New York city. Mm-hmm. So, um, goes back to what we were saying about, what was it? That's how I got my introductory into my first wine job, mm-hmm. uh, which was in 2012 when I returned back to the, the States, but I didn't stick with it because I needed to pay my bills. So, um, I so you. I was kind of like off and on, I was still went back to corporate and then I worked in wine, uh, part-time afterwards and started doing my events. And so now four years ago, I really was like, okay, how I'm going to make this real transition to one day being, I guess, where I'm at today, mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur, you know, working as a consultant or whatever, but I wanted to be strictly in wine and no longer part-time. And so that was me just kind of realizing all that self-awareness, like, you know what, I really enjoy traveling, but I really love wine. And I feel like that's something, even if I can introduce people to traveling to these particular wine countries that I visited or educating them through tourism, that's what I really want to do. And so that's when I was like, okay, first start with small experiences, which is just given my uh, communion event, which I've done and started right in my apartment in New York City in Harlem. I remember and those. It on the road. And so I've now hosted wine in Rome, Madrid, London, Oakland, Quebec City, um, and of course, Brooklyn, you know, throughout New York City as well. So um, so yeah, so that's kind of really where it started was like, I wanted to do something and take it to the next level. I didn't really see where I can jump right in. I was like, I'm trying to become a Psalm, not really understand what it was either, but I knew I had all this wine on the lineage from working in a store and people at the store don't get the same kind of love as Psalm. So that's why I started to take, I took that exam that we just talked about mm-hmm. and or I started studying for exams in 2017, 2018 and started um, going that route. It's because I realized that my time working in the store felt like I wasn't going to make it like to be this brand and to build my own business. And then I needed to kind of have that title by my name as a sommelier to get there. And to be honest, it was true. I think if I still only worked in the store, maybe no one would have found me until today because in 2020, everybody's like, hey, find black folks who look who work in wine. <laughs> Tell me like, about oh, it. <laughs> I know Chad, you know, she's over there in that wine shop, you know. Uh, so it was nice when I actually see people who tell stories uh, or about me or when they talk to me, they're like, yo, I live in Brooklyn. I used to come up to that wine shop. I lived in Harlem. I remember when you worked there. Like, I used to come up to that shop and you used to be there. You used to help me with this wine. You helped me find this, blah, blah, blah. You told me about that. Like, ooh, I knew you was going to be somebody. 
<laughs> I love that about Harlem, about New York in general, about the black community. They're always like, I knew you, I knew you were going to be somebody. <laughs> when you sold me that wine, you knew what you was talking about. And the so, journey that you're talking about is so beautiful, you know, like starting oh, out you. and, you know, realizing sometimes that you need the title. Sometimes you need that diploma, you know, depending on where you're at in your life. Sometimes you do need that piece of paper, you know, even though yes. you're paying off debt for forever and not with the song. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you need that piece of paper to elevate you a little bit. Um, and so I know that you're like, you kind of grew up in hospitality, you know, and that one of the things that you focus on is democratizing, you know, you know, travel and luxury, especially when it comes to like the wine industry. Can you tell us different things that you do with flight crew or different things that you've seen as a consultant that just kind of is allowing us to black folks, people of color folks to have a seat at the table? Yeah, I mean, the work that I do on my own, for for instance, is really about, you know, and I could go back to the communion, it's about like, hey, everyone come over to my house or how it started, we can have these same five course, you know, wine pairing experiences that I've seen, you know, again, I am an engineer, I have a salary, I can go afford these multi-course dinners that I was having in foreign countries and in New York City, but I realized that maybe my mama ain't never experienced that or my cousins didn't know about it, or, you know, the girl from the block. And so I was like, you know what, we're we gonna, we gonna make it happen with our food in our way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let me put this together. So this longer format, you know, version of like seating, sitting forever and eating and drinking and just like loving on each other in communion with each other, it's something that I loved about being in Europe uh, and in, in America, I feel like it's usually related to fine dining experiences only. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make something that was a little bit more affordable, you know, for, to make it accessible for people to have that same kind of experience. So some people may say my experiences were too much money. Oh, $200 for a ticket or 150 for this and all that. It may be too much for them, but I'm, I'm not here to give you fast food. <laughs> Let's make it <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm just trying to make something that would have normally cost you $300 to experience. I'm making it at $150 for half the price. So for those who can't afford what I'm doing, this is for them. You know, I, I, I try to get them to see where I was going. I'm like, let's keep it. Let's cap it here. Let's figure out what can we do. Maybe give them a taste of something or maybe we switch out the protein. But the whole point is about seeing the magic of pairing and they need to have exposure to that. Instead of just thinking, oh yeah, let me, like drinking to get drunk, you know, yeah. wine. You know, they need to see the magic of it when it's actually connected to the food and connected to our food, you know. And so one of my first media recognitions is when I did the communion and focused on wine parents with food from Senegal. And I think a lot of people just, it kind of took them on a trip. Like what's happening? Uh, why is she, like, why is she putting wine with food, you know, Senegalese food? Is she Senegalese? I'm like, no, no. Like, you know, like, so why do you even care? But I'm like, how do we connect the diaspora to our motherland? How do we connect where we are today to our ancestors and, the, and everything else that we've been taught? We have to make it more realistic to us. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not here to give you a, uh, let's say a, you know, 11 Madison Park experience, right? <laughs> uh, I'm here to give you the experience that you would want when you feel comfortable, right? You're not feeling like, oh, nervous. Like, okay, where does the napkin go? What, what do I do with this fork? Like, no girl, yeah. be, be as, you, as you are, you know, mm -hmm. I'm here to serve you food. I'm here to serve you jokes. 
give you some drops of wine knowledge and make sure that your, your pairings is going perfectly. Here, your responses, let's interact. A lot of people of color don't like wine because it's too tart, it's too bitter, it's too this, but that's because they don't know the magic of pairing. Once they have it with the perfect dish, then it's almost like, oh, that was fantastic. The light bulb goes off. <laughs> Immediately. And so, yeah, maybe you're not cooking that at home, but now you are open to the idea that this wine is not like, I hate dry wine, right? And so I'm just trying to remove the, the idea or the, the glaze of like, oh yeah, you know, black people only like sweet wines. Well, because they like sweet things. And if they're just having a glass by themselves and yes, but if you actually paired it with the perfect dish, then they go, oh, wait a minute, what's that? You know, and so we, we end up having a dialogue, you know, and so, I feel like that's the magic of, you know, making it more, con you know, connected to us yes. by connecting it to the things that are more familiar with us in the places where we go, you know, so in Harlem, in Brooklyn, with the foods we eat, whether it's from our culture or our distance cousins and, you know, and, and, and feeling like, okay, then why, maybe it could be for me, you know, now that they have this exposure. And so the communion allowed me to do that. There's other spaces that people are creating organizations that are making sure, well, it's even on social media. So just the idea of coming up with good content for people to be connected and have fun, you know, joking around or uh, there's, there's many folks that you can follow that can that do that. And I, I, applaud, I applaud that energy too. And obviously now black, more black folks, especially younger generation, thinking about being winemakers. I feel like that's a, a, a growing trend that, that I think that's a good trend. More people that I know, they're like, oh, you know, there's the people in that we already know that already exists. But then it's like now, because we keep saying the same five names, <laughs> people are like, well, maybe I should make my own wine. And I'm like, yes, you should, you know, so we can just have more options out there. Yeah, I know like Mary J. Blige came out with the one, like the black celebrities are coming in. And I also know there's some people like the McBride sisters and other people. Yeah, what are some pivots that you see that are happening in the wine industry because of like the pandemic and us being locked inside? I know you have a subscription service. So what are some pivots, you know, that you're making and that you see in the industry and that you feel like might be sticking um, for the future beyond 20? 21. So yeah, you mentioned about flight crew. So um, more, more wine subscriptions, more virtual tastings. So mm. uh, just to give folks some background on flight crew, I do a virtual tour and tasting. So uh, it's a play on words. It's flight, like a wine flight, as well <laughs> as flight, like traveling. And it's crew spelled C-R-U, um, which is like the crew level in, in France. That's how they would distinguish certain uh, hierarchies in France. So premier crew or grand crew wine. So it's spelled this way. And so, um, so yeah, so in my case, I did see an uptick, obviously. I didn't even, I've never done a virtual experience before until May or April of the pandemic. But then I realized as it kept being a demand, um, I should go back to say that in Portugal, I am a, not virtually, but I am a actual wine tour and wine. I do wine tasting experiences for people on um, Airbnb. Mm. And so it was very easy because I was already on Airbnb experience as a host um, for when people came to Portugal, they can book me to take them to a vineyard or to do a tasting, which I call basically like Portuguese wine 101. Um, 
to basically do that same thing I did in person, but to do it uh, virtually. And so I was reached out, um, they reached out to me and I ended up being one of the top virtual tasting experiences on Airbnb for Mother's Day. So that was Ooh, May. Congrats. All May. <laughs> it was like, people like, I want to book my, me and my mother for this, me and my mother for this. Me and, and I was like, okay, this is clearly becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but then from that, I actually learned from that platform and from that experience on there is that what people were looking for, like from the virtual tastings mm-hmm. and some of the things that I wasn't be able to provide. And that's why I decided to create my own wine subscription, um, which obviously blocks me out from when I on Airbnb, folks can be joining me. I had somebody, it was their birthday in Manila in the Philippines. Wow. And it was the morning for them. And it was like, we just woke up. Hi, everybody. And they had all this energy. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it's his 30th birthday. We're doing a tasting with you guys. And so, of course, I couldn't, I don't know what wines he has access to in Manila, but at the same time, so I'm blocked off from the folks that are, you know, abroad, but here, a lot of people just couldn't find the wines that I was suggesting. And I was like, okay, we got to put it into all this. Mm-hmm. So people need the wines that I'm saying, cause they like that Slovenian wine that you're talking about. I cannot find that where I'm at. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and so, and I'm very interested, not in the big brand producers. I like supporting smaller businesses, family owned wineries, good farming, you know, quality, quality grapes, um, you know, maybe low intervention, you know, as far as wine practices as well. So i.e. no to low chemicals being used. Yes, yes. <laughs> so extra, that. you know, as we call someone calls it makeup. I mean, um, wine with no makeup. So nothing Ooh. trying to cover it up to make it like like look good and smell good and taste good that you're gonna get what's in the glass because that's what we got from Mother Nature that year, from our land that year. So I like featuring wines like this. And so if you're living in the middle of Kansas, girl, I don't know where to tell you to go. I'm praying <laughs> to find the wines that I have, you know, access to in New York. And so that was like, okay, people want to do the tasting, but they can't, I got to keep like lowering the type of wines that, or that I would want to normally serve. So mm-hmm. I said, you know, let me just come up with a wine subscription so folks can be able to get the wines I like and want to talk about and take them on a trip they will now mentally be in Slovenia because now we're going to talk about Slovenia. We're going to talk about the food in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and be able to connect, tell you why the wine is orange. You know, why is it called orange wine? People don't even understand these things. And I'm like, okay, now they're getting something a little bit different than just a normal wine subscription, but they also getting something that they wouldn't have access to maybe in the middle of Kansas either, meaning like the actual wines too. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like my wine subscription is the one is different and better because of this. Um, but I really see more wine subscriptions coming out and more virtual tastings and probably separate, right? More people promoting themselves to be virtual uh, for events. And then the idea of having it combined in my case, from my experience is why I want folks to, to lean into what I'm doing. And it's a, I want people to feel like they're part of a community. So I'm trying to build that up too. Like, the idea is one day to actually have you go on this trip with me and we are going to go to Slovenia and we are going to have the, we're going to visit that winery I was talking about. And so I feel like that's the next level of what I see my program being developed as mm-hmm. once we get out of quarantine, but virtual, 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 um, more trends I can see uh, being established is 
folks really taking their wine knowledge to the next level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do feel like like the question that we spent some time just talking about the different levels or different organizations, I get those questions a lot, uh, whether it's in my DMs or emails, folks just like, oh child, what should I study? What should I do? And I'm like, girl, what do you want to do? And I feel like no one really knows the answer at the end of the day. I think they kind of just start out with like, wow, I want to be something like you. I'm like, wow, I don't want to work on nobody restaurant floor no more. I want to own the restaurant. (laughs) Exactly. And so I I guess I'm trying to get people to also shift their mindset. It's like, nah, Sam, again, is a wine servant. Like, I want to own what's going on. I want to own the wine bar. I want to own, you know, what's happening. And then, yeah, I can always keep sommelier on my resume, but that's not... A, a, you don't need to be a sommelier to, to own the bar you know like exactly so let's make that clear okay so um you should still study wine and all this other stuff but you don't need to go through what I went through um and I I shouldn't say I wish they, there was a sommelier black man Andre Mack who did tell me this you know I came up to him saw him at an event and I was like you know oh my god I called him Uncle Mac. Uncle Mac. I was like Andre what's up you know Love everything that you're doing. Um, love your wines. For those of you who are looking for black wines uh, to purchase, Andre Max Wines is underneath the name uh, Mouton Noir. And he has the Love Drunk Rosé, people may have be familiar with, or the OPP wines um, as well, which means other people's pinots. Uh, <laughs> so he got this kind of homage to pop culture, connection to his wines, et cetera. And so I remember seeing him, I forget how many years ago, like three years ago or something like this, when I first like met him and saw him at this event. He was like, oh, I never passed any of those exams. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is a man who was who was known as a sommelier who worked at some of the like per se and French laundry. This is like some of the top restaurants in America. And he's like, I never passed any of those exams. I'm like, what? I was like, okay, now I'm confused. Cause I'm over here in the weeds of my studying and you telling me you never even passed like one, like I'm throwing <laughs> off. Um, and he was like, no, I realized in that in order, like, instead of just like waste, cause these exams cost a lot of money. I forget to mention that as well. They're like thousands of dollars. I can imagine. Mind. I had to fly to Charleston, South Carolina to go take my tests. So they're not giving like, oh, you could just take it tomorrow here in New York. No, they sell out fast. And then you got to wait six months to take the next one if you want to take it in New York. So I'm like, nah, I'm ready now. So I'm taking, so I flew down to Charleston in order to take my exam. Um, With all that being said, so there's a lot of money that's put into these organizations, testing organizations, educational organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So he was like, "Mm -mm, I had no money to waste. He said, no, I just like, I wanted to build my business while everybody else was spending money on trying to take these exams. I was spending my money on trying to build my winery. (laughs) So I was like, cheat code. Let's start talking about black equity. Let's not talk about how we can be wine servants in somebody else's white establishment. But no, it's something that stuck with me. And I feel like I try to also prophesize that same idea to people too. It's like, nah, girl, don't be a psalm be some like, you know, hire Psalms. What you gonna do? Like you go, you have exactly. a Psalms working for you. Um, and so the less glorifying that we do over the title, the people recognize that the Psalm don't own the restaurant. Actually, the Psalm usually don't even control the wine list. The person that control the boss for the Psalm is called a wine director. So if you want to be anything, the Psalm's boss be that the wine director. That's good to know. And you know, I love how you're talking about, you know, there's 
you know, the sommelier is the title, it's the paper, but there's other levels and there's other aspirations that, you know, are a little bit more important that give you more creative control. So I love that you're talking about that. And, you know, you mentioned Uncle Mac, you know, who's another sommelier. And so I just wanted to know, are there any other ones that we should know about, um, you know, other women, other people of color sommeliers that we should be familiar with and, you know, that you either admire or know? Sure. So Tonya Pitts, She's a wine director. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, wine directors are sommeliers. Sommeliers are not wine directors. Um, and so Tonya Pitts, Zwan Grays, um, also a wine director in New York. Tonya Pitts is in California in the Bay Area. Um, I would say if you want to follow people who actually like walk that walk that has done the work that they do um, currently at restaurants and now virtually, however way we can for those who've recently been um, furloughed or laid off during COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, you know, Andre Mack, but Andre Mack, again, he's trained as a sommelier, but he owns a wine empire now. <laughs> so if you want that type of, you know, direction, Mouton Noir and uh, following up with his brands is important. He has a ham bar in Brooklyn. Um, so that'd be, and he also has a wine shop in Brooklyn. So in his neighborhood. So he's also, and he also has a book called 99 Bottles. So like support, like people looking, Googling Psalms can get you but so far. You got to look at people who really are doing the work and breaking like bigger, breaking into bigger rooms for us mm-hmm. I feel like in that you know the song part should be actually easier to get into now but we should be thinking about how we elevating that um who else do I love right now I'm like right now yeah. <laughs> like, like, you also yourself so- of course you know they need to support oh, yeah, well, follow, follow yeah. you know subscribe to the yes. crew <laughs> Yes, you sign up for the flight crew um, if you want to get into some of these virtual experiences. Yeah. Um, but there is plenty of people, and I'm trying to think wine only. Uh, we have Jade Marley. Uh, she's She works for a distributor. And so she has a specialty with some rare wines that I think she'll be awesome to follow as well. And I'm going to say one more because I feel like uh, a Kelly. Of, Kelly Selects, I don't, I'm dropping her last name, but Kelly Selects, um, she also has a uh, wine subscription. And so hers is a different angle. They have, um, I think she does like six and she does them seasonally. So yeah. So yeah, these are some folks in the industry that I feel like know their stuff, passionate about wine and I realized that it takes a mixture of both being passionate about wine as well as people and, you know, ego remove. They're not looking, you know, it's not about like the gram for them. It's really about pushing out knowledge and getting wine to the people. And I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for highlighting all those people. I'm going to look into them because I learned a lot about, you know, the different people just doing the work and how, you know, it is not necessarily everything doesn't have to always be on the gram you know what I'm saying although I feel like that's our generation but you know there are people who are successful who are making money who are doing the work in terms of including other people and other cultures and they yep. don't always take up they don't always have a moment to take a picture of it okay <laughs> well, that's not where their business is at they doing real work on the ground in their cities 
you know, hustle and wine. Kelly is a work for a distributor. So in her case, same idea, right? Been in the industry selling wine to restaurants, to wine shops. There's no interaction with customers. That's a B2B job when you're yeah. a wine distributor. So you take this bottle, you hustle it to another wine shop and go, hey, this wine is great. You guys should put it in a shelf. They go, Kelly, this is awesome. Um, we'd love to put it here. There's no customer in there taking pictures of you. This That's a real meeting with the tasting in real life. And then someone bought the wine and put it in a wine shop. There's no, <laughs> no glamour part in there. She's like, you know, and I feel like some people, it's not just because we don't just put it on the gram, the job doesn't require it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. awesome at what you do, but there's, you don't need to put uh, it on a gram for it to be noted. She can still make a lot of money doing that without ever being uh, Insta famous, you know? Yes. Okay. So I have, I think I have a couple more questions for you, like two okay. more. Okay. So what is your main piece of advice? You can give one piece of advice um, that you would give any listeners who's interested in becoming a sommelier or becoming, you know, in entering into the wine industry, whether it's a wine director, like you put us on to, or anything like that, what is your one piece of advice that you would give them? i mentioned earlier about starting with your why, like why you want to be in the wine industry or what you actually want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and normally people don't, I hope after listening to me talk today, that people do know what a sommelier is and what psalms actually do. Um, so that they can know when they say, I want to be a psalm like you, what does that really entail? You know, long nights reorganizing shelves, you know, <laughs> uh, searching for wines that the inventory say we have that we can't find, you know, finding the broke bottle that's in the back of the refrigerator that's leaking through all of the, you know, wine. So I got to pull out every single one to find that one bottle. Like this, like, again, not glorified work. Like, mm-hmm. and so I do recognize that there is this kind of mixed context. Um, a book that really recalls that, uh, which I love to tell people to go to first before they sign up for anybody's program, pay any money for tests, is called Cork Dork by Bianca. I'm going to lose her last name. Um, but Cork Dork is her journey from, I forgot, I think she worked in like advertising or something else first, um, like me, and then also transitioned. You know, we both were transitioners into the wine industry. She she learned about what a sommelier was. And then she did, she literally, uh, it's like a memoir of her journey from the transition into becoming a sommelier. And at the end, she passes the certified sommelier exam. But how, yeah, I think that's the main thing. It's kind of like figure out what you really want to do and why, and what is it that you want to create in this space? You know, um, I recognize what my legacy is. And so I'm still trying to prophesize the idea of how much travel and connecting cultures um, is important. And so I use wine um, as my as my way to bridge that gap. So for me, it's, 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 a, look, it's realer than hip hop. It's bigger than wine for me. Yeah. Um, it's me just using that to be the connector. Um, just like how one of my favorite people, Anthony Bourdain used food to you know learn about other people and other cultures. And, uh, and travel, obviously. So once you have food at the table, kind of like removes the barrier. And of course, I feel like throw a little wine on there. It, it takes it to a whole nother level. Right? World peace, is- world peace. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that's, um, you got to kind of figure out what's your own personal uh, legacy or mark that you want to leave on the world. And then if you know you want to use wine to do that, do it. Figure out how to like integrate that. So 
Oh, that is a beautiful why. And it's wonderful oh. to see you doing that. You know what I'm saying? And you know, I love Anthony Bourdain. I say I'm the Anthony Bourdain of history. So that really like rest in peace, Anthony Bourdain. Look, Thanks I try for to be connecting us. So exactly. <laughs> Here we are, the two Anthony Bourdains of our industry killing it right now. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So I know I know a lot of people have probably want wanted me to ask this question out the gate, but I wanted to wait until the end. What are some wine selection tips and tricks that you have for us common folks? You know what I mean? Like we're, we're not, we're not on the level yet, but like, you know, if I go to Trader Joe's or some wine place right now, what, you know, or I have a meal, like what are some tips and tricks that, you know, could help me figure out where to start or what to pick if I make something tonight? First things first, shop small. So go to the smaller wine shops, um, depending on where your listeners are. If they see some big box store that has a whole bunch of wines, doesn't mean that they don't they have bad selections. But if you don't know where to start, it can be very overwhelming. Yeah. So the smaller the shop is, hopefully it means it's more curated. Um, and you can always tell if it's a place that's serious about wine versus spirits because it has more wine than spirits. It's, <laughs> that is that simple, right? You walk in, they got a wall full of whiskeys, but then right here, this is the only shelves for wine. You're like, oh yeah, this is all they had. Because girl, you went to a liquor store. <laughs> to a wine shop, you know? So let's just go with the where to go, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's that's rule number one. Number one. Uh, I always say it's like shop at smaller um, at smaller shops, okay? Um, then when you're in those stores, whether the person, like you have a connection with the um with the Cavus that's there to help you figure out which wine to select or not. But I, I always say, and you said something about food, but let's just say if it wasn't food related, if you were just kind of like, I need a, I need a, I want to drink a nice glass of wine tonight, you know, trying to connect back to a memory. Maybe it was at a Italian restaurant or maybe it was literally when you were in Italy, you know? And so whatever thing can, I guess this is the idea of connecting wine to almost like a self-care idea is that, oh, you know what? I wish I was in Italy right now. Okay, so then maybe you go straight to the wine shop and you say, I'm looking for wines from Italy. Mm-hmm. And then that that can actually place you. And maybe because I'm the traveler, it's easier for me to think of geography first, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, another way to think of this too, that, that kind of like second level of like filtering out the store mm-hmm. is maybe think of what style of wine you want at that time. Um, meaning, you know, whether it's red or white, um, maybe it's even body, like how you feel. Like, I don't want anything too strong. I just want something easy going and light. That, allow, that says a lot, believe it or not. And I feel like instead of a lot of people going, I don't know when they come into the shops, the people like me, when, I, when I'm trying to help you, you know, help me help you. you know? <laughs> so you got to tell me what you want. Like, do you want something? Like, so we end up standing there like we're therapists asking people 50 questions to get down to one bottle when they probably already had, a, they definitely had a feeling, even if they don't know which grave or which country, et cetera. Like, you know, I just want a nice red. Um, oh, I just want to drink it alone with no food. That says a lot to me. Like, I'm like, okay, I don't want to give you this wine that's like super acidic or super tannic and you telling me you're not eating anything with it. Okay, so now I'm like, okay, let me narrow down the shop, like where you want to go or where you should, um, where should you select for, for wines or which grapes to look at? So I feel like that's important too. And again, I'm giving these kind of clues to you. Yes. As someone who has, like, if you're not coming in there like, I want a cab from California that's from 2015. Like, you know. Yes, of course. Yeah, I said common folk. I'm that's you're doing it. You're doing it right. And so if you have no like if you if you're not you don't know what to give, 
mm-hmm. uh, to the, even if you're in a restaurant and you're picking wines from the wine list, a lot of these things would, would mean a lot. But again, that wouldn't then incorporate what you're pairing it with, what you're having for dinner with the restaurant. In this case, in the shop, I feel like starting there can narrow down a lot, like what you feel mm-hmm. like that day. Like, girl, I had a long day. It's Friday night. I need some help. so if that's where you're going then let's just do it you know and so I can tell you about those selections I won't be I won't suggest a nice Pinot Grigio from northern Italy like yeah I would would then take you to something more robust something fuller um if that's what you're looking for as part of your experience and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to help you have the best wine experience even when you're in the shop but at home, right? So we're not there. And so it always makes us feel good when you come back like, girl, that wine you suggested was amazing. You know, give me three more of those plus, <laughs> you know, because then we, we feel like like we nailed it or yes, we knew exactly what she wanted or he wanted, you know, and be honest with yourself. Even if you do like sweet wines, it's okay. Go on an adventure. Don't, don't come in and just go, oh, I want Moscato. So there, there's the reverse. There's the people who come in who just, who knows? Oh no, but I only drink Moscato. You're like, but there are other sweet white wines. Mm, I can explore. <laughs> yeah, so I really feel like that's something. If you do want to, don't be so scared that if you're not going to get Moscato, it's automatically going to be dry. And I feel like a lot of people run, you know, um, from listening to us or, listen, you know, listening to our advice because of that. Like, I want to give you um, something else to try. You can come back the next day and tell me you hate it. But I feel like if you like that one, I got like at least five other ones that I want you to possibly try. So be open to the experts, um, I would say, and be open about your budget. That's yes. <laughs> be real. Like, girl, all I got is $15. Like, you can go wherever this $15 could go. <laughs> I'd like, you know, I'd rather you, uh, like, so I would suggest folks to spend um, probably between 20 to 40 if you want to go for a, a nice sweet spot of wine and and I mean like it can be 21 it can be 18 it can be mm-hmm. 36 you know I feel like in those numbers you end up finding some really cool gems because you know they're not they're not being made for quantity like when you get to like the ten dollar and under range that people find they're made so that, you know, just to satisfy the person who's like, ooh, give me that two buck chuck and that's it. And I want five of them. So you want to get to a, a cool, a good a price point that actually you may find some gems that are being made at a, at a good quality. And the last part, like I said, that was the last part, but looking for unique producers slash regions. You know, I just already mentioned about how I'm drinking wine from Eastern Europe because that was part of our last flight crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really want people to understand that these other more unique and obscure countries and regions normally have lower price points versus France, for example, or Napa Valley, because they're so the brand of where they're from elevates the price. That's like nine times out of 10, I'm saying. But these are just things to kind of consider. Like if I was walking through a wine shop and didn't know uh, what to do, or I've never seen any of these labels before, which is obviously happens when I'm in new cities, et cetera. This is what I look for. And support local. I loved all your tips. I really like the suggestion of even wanting, you know, maybe you want to travel, you know, to a different country with your tongue, with 
the wine. You know what I'm saying? Because we're all quarantining, traveling is limited. So it's like, maybe you want to taste a wine from a country you've never been to, but it's on your bucket list for when we get out of here. (laughs) So I love, I love that suggestion. I never really thought of that. Now, before we get into like the little game of the show and the last signature question, just tell people how they can support you, where they can find you. Drop all the gems so people can continue this experience after they listen to this podcast. So right on my website, chamacoy.com, C-H-A-M-C-C-O-Y. You'll see tabs for both the lip service project as well as uh, flight crew. And it will direct you. All you got to click is book a flight and you'll be, you know, sent right to the website for payment. So, and I have what I call um, short-term and long-term visa. And so you'll be able to pick the one month box if you just want to try it out or if you want to do the three month box. And so you'll get three months worth of four full bottles of, of wine. So, and you can enjoy at your leisure. I don't really force people to join into the virtual taste and having to open all the wines. I recognize people may live alone and, and things like that. So, you know, open up one and then just kind of take in, soak in all the information um, during the virtual tasting if you want, or just enjoy the wine and don't join, whatever. It's totally <laughs> up to you. So um, that's basically what I'm, what I'm focusing on right now. Wow. Thank you for that. Okay. So we're going to do a game called this or that. And I ask you, you know, to choose two different things. It's kind of rapid fire. It's only like three or four of them. Um, And so you choose one and then we'll have the signature question of the show. So red or white? Orange. (laughs) Cha. (laughs) You're so Harlem right now. Okay. Stem or no stem? Oh, no. Stem all day. Okay. Pinot Noir or Merlot? Okay. Sweet or sparkling? Sparkling. Okay, cool. See, that was, that was it. Okay. Now you got to tell us about the orange wine because you mentioned it before (laughs) and you mentioned it now. So tell us about the orange wine. Why is it orange? Where I'm, where is it from? (laughs) Well, like what I have a whole nother history lesson. Look, this is, was not in your textbook about wine. Even if you study wine, they don't talk much about we called, uh, any wine that's from Europe is called old, oh gosh, <laughs> old, uh, we have old wine and we have new world wine, old okay. world wine and new world wine. But then there's this place, Eastern Europe, where wine is actually from. And so it's weird because we normally think, oh yeah, France and Italy and all these places. It's like, nah, son, this is the thing that needs to be in your textbook, is that wine is from uh, where some brown folks live, which is Syria. Azerbaijan, uh, present day Georgia. This is where wine is from. So folks from these mountains, <laughs> you know, mm. um, long history with the Phoenicians traveling over to Europe and spreading, you know, grape seeds and planting and vines, blah, blah, blah. But that's, you know, that's how it moved to present day Rome and, uh, you know, Malta and different areas around and Greece, of course. Um, but the further east you go is ancient world wine. And so they end up carrying out some of the same traditions where instead of making a white wine where you remove the skins and you just keep the juice from the grapes and ferment it, they make white wine or they use white grapes, I guess you say green grapes to use the same uh, process as making red wine. So they keep the skins in contact. So that green grape, or even sometimes maybe the grit may be yellow or maybe even have like a little pinkish hue to it. <clears throat> the longer that it has skin contact with the juice, 
it's going to give you more of a orange color. Wow. And so that's why we call them orange wines. No oranges involved, but it is like my go-to wine style to drink during uh, the winter season. And I love these styles of wines, but like pad thai. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I would be remiss to not talk about, you know, pairings. I'm, I'm a foodie covered up with wine now. Okay? <laughs> Let's be real clear. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And so the last question, the signature question of the podcast is if you had to write a chapter in a textbook on wine, what would you call it and why? Maybe I'll call it pairings for my people. I like that. Because I really feel like, you know, shining a light on some amazing pairings that go well with food from everywhere is is what I'm about. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I learned so much. I'm sure my listeners learned a lot as well. Thank you for having me, Toya. And so that is the conclusion of season two, episode two on the history of wine. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Cha. She was so refreshing. I love her voice. I feel like she should have a podcast. And, you know, this episode was a little bit more lengthy than usual, but she just dropped so many bombs and I couldn't figure out what to edit out. So thank you for listening to the entire thing. I hope you learned something new because I know I learned so much listening to her and doing the research on this episode make sure you follow that wasn't in my textbooks all over the interwebs we are everywhere pinterest youtube ig ig is probably the best place to follow us so make sure you're following us there make sure you're subscribed to this podcast if you're not already and share this with a friend or online at any point tell a friend to tell a friend because this podcast is all about learning together and so we need to spread the knowledge you know what i'm saying um make sure you come back next week you heard me right next week i know it's a bi-weekly podcast but i'm gonna do an episode next week because i'm a little behind so i want to catch up and i want to give you all a bonus episode so next week i will be doing another episode friday march 19th come back for that bonus episode It's going to be good. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power.